So today I'm delighted to be with uh, Dr. Renu Singh, who's our country director of Young Lives in India. And she is an expert on early childhood development, gender, equity and inclusion. Renu has over 30 years of teaching experience, teacher education, early child development, policy analysis and research in India and overseas. She's held post um, as the director of the School of Rehabilitation Science at the University of Delhi. She's been the director of Save the Children in India. She's been on several um, working groups in the education sector, and she's a research associate here at the Oxford Department of International Development. So, Renu, thanks for joining me. Thank you very much, Kath, and thanks for the introduction. Thank you. So, I wanted to hear more about your own journey. I mean, you've been a teacher and now you work in education policy. So, yeah, how did it all begin? Yeah, it all began, um, I think, when uh, after I had uh, my my children, um, I I realized that I, I, I love kids. I, I didn't know that till then, to be honest. <laughs> <laughs> and uh, I then decided to train uh, as a Montessorian. Um, it probably runs in the family. My mother ran 35 schools, Montessori schools, uh, and I grew up as a Montessori child. And so that for me was, you know, I, I guess I, I thought I didn't really have what it takes to be a good teacher. So like I said, it all it was quite <laughs> late that I, uh, you know, I moved into the education sector. And then I, um, I set up a school in Dubai. That's how it started. I ran a Montessori school. Um, and uh, that's, you know, we had about, I think, uh, 20, 20 odd nationalities, you know, children from different nationalities. And, and we had children with disabilities. And I realized that I you know, I, I wanted to do more for children with disabilities. So that's when I trained to become a special educator. And uh, in fact, I went on to do my PhD in inclusion of children with disabilities um, and uh, set up uh, when I came back to India, I, I had the opportunity of setting up the School of Rehab Sciences, the first uh, one of its kind, because we had no training programs at that stage at, at the postgraduate level for special educators to be trained. And so there were no human resources available. And I, that's what actually moved me from being a direct hands-on practitioner, though uh, I continued to teach uh, for two days. And that was my understanding with the university that I would go into classrooms and continue to teach twice a week uh, if I wanted to hold on to that academic position because I couldn't think of not being with children and, uh, you know, and bringing back all that to the classroom uh, with the trainees. So and then I think uh, over the years, I, you know, I moved to Save the Children when Save the Children India was being set up um, because it, you know, it gave us a chance to actually look at um, changing uh, programs on the ground um, and, you know, being contextual and responding to the needs of different states. Uh, and Young Lives was actually um, part of, um, of my portfolio in SAVE because we were the policy partner. And yes, I guess the rest is history. I've been <laughs> now part of Young Lives since 2010. 
That's fantastic. And I mean, not all academics have that direct experience working as a teacher. So I can see how your passion is coming through. And so, yeah, so obviously you're based in, in India and uh, one of your big passions is, is around gender inequality and, as you said, inclusion, disability inclusion. So how do you see the situation? Do you, do you see things improving in India over time since you've been working on these issues of gender and um, disability inclusion? I think so. I think, you know, because... Um, I, even gender has many layers, you know, so there's, um, it, you know, you, you, today, you know, we are, we're talking of inclusion, um, you know, across genders beyond just binaries. We're talking of, uh, you know, we're talking of uh, discrimination that happens because of caste and gender, because of location, caste and gender, because of ability, caste, gender and location. So look at the multi layers of exclusion that happens. Um, and I think um, th that that uh, today there is more dialogue I, and I see that as definitely progress, you know, because at least we are now opening up to discussing a lot of things which were constantly brushed under the carpet. Patriarchy still continues to remain. Uh, I don't think social norm change happens overnight and it will take a long, long time because it's so I think it's, it's almost institutionalized in our very fabric. Uh, and, um, but I think the, you can see that the younger generation is now questioning and, uh, you know, there is more uh, freedom given to girls, um, you know, in terms of at least choosing what they want to do. Uh, though even today, you know, many, many, you know, it, it's all about the you know, the resources that families have. Yet child marriages are continuing. So girls often um, are left, you know, don't have the opportunities to continue education. So yes, I think definitely there is progress. But is is it fast enough? I don't think so. There is a lot that we still have to do. Yeah. Yeah. And uh, in our own work in Young Lives, we see that gender disparity coming out quite strongly um, in terms of education yeah. outcomes. Yesterday I was talking with Matthew Jukes about social and emotional skills in which girls are behind in, in empowerment uh, related skills. Um, and so we, we see it in our own data, right? Yeah, absolutely, absolutely. And so what I what I wanted to talk about is your your most recent piece of uh, research that you've done on higher education in India. So could you tell us about about that, please? Sure. So this is drawing upon the Young Lives India data from, of course, Andhra Pradesh and Telangana, which are two southern states of India. Um, so, of course, you can't generalize our findings to the rest of India. But um, if you look at the data that we have, um, you know, at the all India level, you know, there are barely a 27.3 percent uh, GER, which means, you know, the, the, of children who young people who are actually going completing and actually not even completing going into higher education and this particular paper looks at completion of higher education so we've kind of taken it a little further so it's not just about access to higher education but how many completed higher education um, and th therefore I think it makes a little you know a contribution particularly in light of the national education policy 2020 which is now aspiring to have at least 50 percent of young people enter higher education um, 
so that's the background to the paper. Yeah, so it's an important issue then. And so what what do we f- what do we find? Do we do we find that um, what are the factors that are causing young women to not complete their education uh, in the way that maybe young men can? Right. So I mean, there is definitely a gender disparity with significantly lower percentage of women in our cohort. We only did this paper with the older cohort because they had turned 26 uh, in round six. So this is drawing upon uh, the longitudinal data, of course, also from round one and two, but mainly round six, because we could see how we got 26, most of them would have completed higher education, right? Um, so we find that 34.5% only of the women had completed higher education compared to almost half the men, you know, just over 50%. Uh, so you could see that, you know, there is a significant difference. Um, we use uh, you know, a, 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 a discrete uh, time hazard model uh, to actually examine, you know, when they've dropped out and wh- what has what have been the factors. And because Young Lies has panel data, we could actually pick on some of the early, you know, individual factors as well as household factors. So, of course, at the household level, we looked at parental aspirations. We looked at wealth index, of course. Uh, but we also looked at, you know, rural-urban divide. And at the individual level, we looked at how many children actually had gone into paid work, for example, at age 12. And we find all these factors, their own uh, occupational aspirations at age 12. And even that, we have maths uh, achievement test results. We have the PPVT, which is a picture Peabody vocabulary test, which is like a proxy for cognition that we've been collecting in the rounds and all these have significant relationship with uh, you know with higher education completion often we we don't find we we overlook these very critical associations uh, and i think uh, you know the paper draws focus on you know things like domestic chores you know for more than a particular number of hours for at age 12 and how it impacts girls particularly compared to boys and so does paid work Absolutely. I think this is one of the really fascinating parts of the paper is saying that even at age 12, we could almost predict who would be able to succeed in higher education based on the the chores they have to do the the test scores that they get. And this is yeah, this is quite striking, I think, and important. Yeah, we shared this with um, with Niti Ayog, which is our policy think tank uh, about two weeks back. And um, I, I was saying that, you know, this this all the more reason draws attention to the fact that we need to now work with parental aspirations. That doesn't cost a lot of money. You know, can we use teacher, uh, you know, pupil teacher, uh, you know, the parent teacher association meetings uh, to build their aspirations and to have dialogues with how important it is and girls can do you know, better, if not as well as boys, uh, you know, and, and give those messages, uh, get role models of uh, alumni from schools to come and talk to parents, you know, things like which are not, they, they're not such resource intense uh, interventions and easy interventions to do. Um, you know, so we we were talking to the ministry about this, and I hope they will take it on. But I think the bigger issue still is son preference. 
Uh, and until we really, uh, you know, go down to running a huge campaign to address this. And I think as a country, we have, you know, we are ready for something like this because, uh, you know, you've got upper middle class, uh, you know, households now realizing that, you know, girls can do as well, if not better than boys people. But you still have a larger population. Um, you know, which still has a very strong son preference. So if there is a choice between who's going to, where are we going to put our money, they will still spend on the boy. Yeah, well, this is a really big issue to address, Renu. I mean, you yourself are a role model, I think, for <laughs> um, women. I, I think there are many out there, you know, particularly coming from the same communities where these, you know, young people come from. Uh, you know, so I think we, yeah, we need to really draw upon those role models. Fantastic. So, I mean, you've you've mentioned this now a little bit you, that you already opened up a discussion about your findings with the Ministry of Education. That was something I wanted to come to now is to think about um, how to affect change uh, in policy when we have research findings, because it's it's quite common that. People write academic papers and then they go to the journal, but yeah. they're never they're never brought to policymakers. But I think that's something where you place quite a focus in your work. Can you tell us any suggestions about what you do to try and get your point across to policymakers and to get them to really understand what the findings mean and what it means for them as policymakers? I think what's been um, what's very critical is to speak in their language. You know, we can't. They're not really interested in the model that you've used to reach the findings. What they're interested in is uh, what what implication does it have for for our programming? You know, what is it that we could do easily? Uh, and it needs to be scalable. It needs to be cost effective. So when you even talk about the findings, they have to relate to you know something that is doable. Uh, so we try and make those pitches and uh, we also write policy briefs uh, in Young Lives exactly for that reason, you know, to make it simple and not to go into the methodological issues, but to just give the clear, give clear messages to policymakers uh, about things that they could do. Um, you know, so just translating the, the, the findings into just clear, you know, interventions that can be taken up, not just the ministry, but also partners like the UN, you know, the, like UNDP or UNICEF. I mean, I, you know, all of them can, you know, can really learn a lot from some of these findings in terms of what interventions they could do on the ground uh, when they're doing these large scale uh, programs uh, with government schools and with rural communities, etc. Thanks, Renu. So the fight continues for equality in education? Absolutely. Not just equality, because equality in education will come when there's equality overall, you know, when you have the same space to express yourself and girls are uh, are given the same standing as the, the, the son is in the household. I think it begins very early. It starts from the nutrition the child gets, uh, you know, a girl child vis-a-vis -vis the boy child, you know, I mean, and I think that that then needs, then moves on to the educational sphere, the health sphere, you know, the, a lot of other things. And you mentioned agency. I mean, uh, you know, you today you we need to we un, we need to really unpack that. You know, it's not just about learning, but it's also about these young people, have, you know, believing in themselves and and having the agency to drive and reach the ambitions that they have.
for themselves. Absolutely. And uh, I think you've you've been to see the field workers who are actually right now doing our survey for round seven. Yes, yes. It, um, yeah, I, we, we've just, we're uh, already in the field. We've, you know, we've just, um, you know, we, we're, we're really happy that we're able to locate and track a lot of our older cohort and younger cohort, even though they have moved many of them, especially the girls have got married and gone into new homes. So these are new new homes that they have. Uh, but yes, I think we're, we, we have, you know, I think a, a very good set of supervisors who have those contacts on the ground who are able to then locate them. And so, yeah, we're very excited. We're really looking forward to the data coming in and uh, learning more about what's happening to our young uh, index children, both younger cohort and older cohort. Absolutely. And that's when we're going to find out where they are now with their education, with their agency and Especially all these. Especially the younger cohort. Yes. Yes, because yeah. they're 22 now. So we will know more about their educational trajectories for sure. Yeah. Yeah. Exciting times. Yes. Yes, absolutely. Well, thank you, Renu, for taking the time to talk. And uh, My pleasure it's fascinating. completely. <laughs> My pleasure.